And now a quick word from our sponsor, Element. Some of you may know I've been battling migraines for a while, and my doctor hadn't found any solutions for me. I was so sick of taking medicine. So I talked to a few of my pro-athlete friends and their trainers who told me I was probably missing important electrolytes. I ordered some Element, spelled with the four letters L-M-N-T, which has essentials like magnesium, potassium, and sodium, and over a 30-day period, I saw my headaches decrease by about half. I'm hooked, so I reached out to the folks at Element Headquarters, and now we're working together to help more of you. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, weakness. For those of you fasting meals or doing intermittent fasting, uh, electrolytes can make the difference between feeling great and feeling like garbage. You know, when you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium. Athletes can lose up to 7 grams a day, and when sodium isn't replaced, it's common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. Anyway, I drink one pack mixed with my water before working out in the morning and one later after dinner to hydrate for the next day. Want to try a free sample? Go to drinkelement, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash Brian Elliott, B-R-Y-A-N-E-L-L-I-O-T-T, and they will send you all the flavors to try. Shipping is just five bucks. My personal favorite is the chocolate because I put it in my protein shake. I also love the orange salt. There's a new watermelon flavor to try. I'm excited for you to check it out. Anyway, get on it. Now back to our episode. Music is one of those mysteries and little miracles in life, isn't it? It has the power to stimulate our brains or put us in a certain mood. If you close your eyes, it can take you back to a moment in time or a memory. I could literally close my eyes right now and think about Depeche Mode's People Are People, and I can almost smell the air or feel the breeze of Newport Beach at 32nd Street trying to park my little VW bug somewhere near the sand with my friends. It's amazing. You're about to watch an incredible conversation between Dan Reynolds and I. I say conversation because this is more than an interview. It really is a very personal talk and I'm so lucky to have had it. Dan shares some really incredible stuff about his music, relationships, some of the dark times he's been through and how he got out of it, as well as some other important issues. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. In any case, this is a great reminder for all of us that whoever you are, wherever you are, we were born for greatness, that we all have gifts to share and art Quoting from one of my favorites, we are the music makers. We are the dreamers of dreams. Hello, I am Dan Reynolds. I sing for Imagine Dragons, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Brand. Dan, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us in your, your house. Thanks for being here. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? I don't know that I uh, got this job. It kind of feels like the job chose me. <clears throat> I never, uh, I grew up in a house where academia was really um, the forefront of everything and art was seen as a hobby. Um, so my mom kind of tirelessly put that into my mind, really just as a protective mother, having friends and family who had been in the art industry and, and had a hard time providing for a family. She knew I wanted to have a family. Um, what did she do? <clears throat> She, uh, so my mom, it's, she actually has a pretty funny story. She was really, she is brilliant. And uh, she was going to be a doctor with her brother, who is now, you know, one of the leading heart surgeons of America, writes the book on heart surgery, genius, genius guy. And the two of them were going to go into 
medicine together. But then she met my dad, and my dad said, you know, convinced her basically to, to, to marry, to get married. Yeah. And that slowed her down and made her think, okay, I'm either going to have a bunch of kids or I'm going to go into medicine. And she chose to have a bunch of kids, and she had uh, nine kids, eight boys, one girl. Oh, yeah. So academia was pushed quite a bit. I've, uh, my brothers are plastic surgeon, anesthesiologist, dentist, and the rest are attorneys. Mm -hmm. A family of big brains. Yeah, a lot of, yeah. Love it. A lot of doctor degrees and those things are a focus. So it was a focus to me, but I never liked it and art was always my preference. And so what does your dad do? My dad's an attorney as well. Okay. And so they tried to steer you away from art. Yeah. But did you showed signs of talent early on? You know, I just I was just it was my life. It was all I did since I was 12 when I started to deal with um, mental health issues, um, music was therapeutic for me in a way that nothing else was. I felt like I could communicate in a way that um, I wasn't able to, to an adult or to, to anyone really. Mm -hmm. um, so I say, you know, that's why I say, I feel like it kind of chose me because I, I really feel like I didn't have a choice. I felt like music was just, if I was gonna stay alive, I was gonna do music. Yeah. And I, I genuinely feel like music saved my life in that way, so. That resonates with me. I mean, I feel that way about storytelling and filmmaking and mm -hmm the creative process. Uh, I totally get that. I mean, you're built like an NFL tight end. Um, did, did they try to get you into sports, but you, you know, you, you went uh, the other way or? I don't really like sports. Uh, I do jujitsu um, and that's about as sporty as I get. Uh, I mean, I enjoy athletics, but I never played anything. I wasn't even allowed to play football because my dad's best friend was a paraplegic from football. And so my mom was like, no, you know, I don't think I would have either way, to be honest. But um, no, I, I have two, uh, the, the reason that I have to stay fit is really, it's just a byproduct of, uh, I have ankylosing spondylitis, which is, and I have ulcerative colitis, but they're autoimmune diseases that um, basically attack my joints. And the only way to not live in pain is to either take really serious medication, which uh, alters my voice, so I wouldn't be able to sing, or, do really, really rigorous um, uh, exercise isn't quite the word. It's almost like, what's uh, the word I'm looking for? Like when you go to a doctor who is like treating your joints through, what's? Rehabilitation. Uh, thank you, thank you. rehabilitation. Yeah. It's more like, a, yeah, like it's, it's like you do all the workout. That you, like I'm not going to a gym and put, like doing bench press and stuff. It's like joints and. Yeah. Physical therapy, yeah. PT kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, like strengthening all my joints and things like that. So I really have to be extremely, extremely, um, like every day I, I probably spend three or four hours working on my body to make sure that I'm not living in extreme pain. Yeah, very smart. I wanna unpack physical health and mental health, how those two also go together. I wanna to go back again in the chronology back to young Dan, what you're thinking about, and you say, you know, this creative life kind of chose you. But also, um, you know, I know a lot of people who watch the show a lot of them even are high school, college students trying to figure out what they want to do. And I, I frame that, this upcoming question with that, that there's a lot of people trying to figure out, what am I good at? And so what advice do you have? What signals did you have that maybe you had a shot at this? Um, it comes out in the lyrics and your music a lot. You know, you talk about maybe being underestimated or underappreciated and now you're finally kind of getting some traction, etc. But what signals? I mean, I think first and foremost, I would just say whatever makes you happy. So pa passionate is a, another word for happiness uh, to a degree to me. I think um, 
music for me, there was nothing I would rather do with my day than sit down and create. And the thought of there is nothing, there's a blank canvas, and now I get to make this into something, and then I get to listen to it, and I have it as an, in an archive, and it's, right. that was exciting for me. Um, just in the way that other art is. I love to draw, I love you know, creating something from nothing, and then having it, and capturing a moment, or a feeling, or a thought. What's the order of operations? Do you start with an idea? Do you start with a melody? For me, I always start with a soundscape. So really what I mean by that is, is um, like I'll sit down with no preconceived notion. I, mean, I never have journaled lyrics previously and said, now I want to turn these lyrics into a song. Some people yeah. do that. Eminem does uh, that, you know. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's the way that a lot of people uh, like to create, but I, I don't. I really like to sit down with no pre preconceived notions and then I'll have a keyboard or a guitar or some sort of melodic instrument. And... Um, and then I'll start to create how I'm feeling. So, and I don't even know what that is. It might be, because feelings are really complex, right? There's not just like sad, happy. There's like, there's also like feeling indifferent. There's feelings of, you know, there's a lot of complexity to emotion. So I, I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll play it. And then it will say what I'm feeling. And then to that, then I will start to write melody and lyric. And sometimes they come usually around in the same vein. Like I'll, I'll hear a melody and I'll hear words with it. And it really is a very, quick process for me. It's never arduous. I've never had writer's block. I've never felt like I need to walk away from this. Like, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that's a gift. It's just, that's just my truth. That's yeah. how I create. I sit down. I always have something I feel or want to say. And I write almost every day. And I've done that since I was 12. And so I've written, you know, thousands of, of these songs at this point. And then I release maybe, you know, like 5% of them or something. Yeah. It seems like for these prolific songwriters, people either I've watched the documentary or I've, I've interviewed them personally, they get in this flow state and it just starts to flow and they put it down on paper or they put it into their computer. And then, like you said, a percentage of it, you know, maybe even gets shelved for a while and sometimes they come back to it. I, I think that's the beautiful thing about art. Like I have a lot of artist friends who will spend a year and write 10 songs and that's their album. And they only wrote 10 songs and they, 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 each one is meticulous and they spend maybe a month and they rewrite it 10 times over. And I don't enjoy that. I, I really don't. And it's not even that I don't enjoy it. I don't create it that way. I don't like to sit in a room with a bunch of people and pour over music in a very uh, methodical way. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't, I really don't write with hard, like I, I don't like writing sessions. I don't like doing that stuff just because for me, it's a very personal thing. I, I I just want to do what I love. And I love sitting in a room by myself and creating. And so that's what I'll do. And then typically when it becomes time for the record, then we'll get in a studio with, the, with the, the other band members. We'll go through these 300 plus songs that happen throughout that cycle in that way. We'll pick through them and then we'll pick like 10 to 15 and then we'll bring them into a studio and kind of materialize them and bring them to life in a band setting. I mean, your music seems like some other artists, but also uniquely different, extremely personal that you're writing from personal experience and then you're pouring it out onto a page. How much of that do you think, would you put a label on that and say that's inspiration? You know, I don't, I don't really know what it is other than uh, just truth. And for me, truth is, is not always been a part of my art. <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's always been there, but I, I would bury it in metaphors because I was very fearful when I started art that I'd never wanted to write a song and had, have anybody know what I was actually talking about. Like when I was 12 years old, especially, you know, I, I remember showing my music to the first time to my dad, I think was the first person I showed a song to. And I, and I was starting to deal with depression for the first time. 
and I didn't want my dad to say, what's wrong with my son? Is my son gonna hurt himself? He's depressed and he needs to see a therapist. Like, I didn't wanna have that conversation. But I didn't wanna write about anything else about, other than being sad. You know? So I would write these songs that were highly metaphorical. Right. That may, I'm sure my dad probably did know. Yeah. You know? um, but, and that, that went into our career. So a lot of the first songs that I ever wrote, whether it was radioactive or a lot of people listen to these songs, they think it's about a post-apocalyptic thing. Or I've heard people say that it was like about Spider-Man, like all kinds of crazy <laughs> things. But that song was me really depressed, writing about depression. Yeah. And, and welcoming to myself to a new age of enlightenment and happiness, which is always what I've tried to do since I was young, which is to kind of reach somewhere that I can't which is out of a clouded mind of depression. Yeah. So. How early on, what's, what's the level of self-awareness that you had? How early were you kind of keyed in that you were depressed? Um, because, you know, speaking personally, I didn't really think depression was a thing until later on in my life when it really punched me right in the face. And right. I was like, oh, I, th I think I'm depressed. Right. <laughs> it's almost like that idea of my eyes are leaking. What's happening? When I mean, you're crying for the first time, you know, you're just not self-aware. How early were you? Did you I didn't out? have a name for it uh, in my teenage years, but I knew that I was different than the kids around me. I wasn't like, um, I, I was just different. And I didn't quite know what it was. Uh, when I got into high school, I certainly started to know that I was, okay, this is depression. It's not sad. Anybody who's been depressed knows that it's not. You know, there's a big difference between, hey, I'm sad, my girlfriend broke up with me. I'm, I'm heartbroken, I'm sad. And depression. Depression, I mean, that could maybe trigger someone into a depression, and that's right. another conversation. But for me, what depression was, is there was no real reason that I could point to. Right. But I was, lo I lost interest in everything that I usually used to like. I became very antisocial. I didn't want to go out. Uh, and felt like numb. Like people would talk to me, and it would just go in one ear and out the other. And I was mm -hmm. giving the minimal effort to get out of every conversation. You start to detach. Yeah. Yeah, and isolate. Yep. Yeah, and it's ironic, right? Because that's the absolute opposite of what you need at that given right. time, right? You need to connect. You need help. I'm glad that you're outspoken about mental health. I think, of course, in the last decade, I guess, there's been a lot more talk about it, a lot more acceptance, but I still think there's still such a stigma. We were talking off camera about my wife's brothers in the military you know, the military and, you know, depression or any kind of uh, circumstance of the heart or the mind, it's off limits, right? They, a lot of people look at it as a, as a weakness. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, like you touched on, I, I really believe that we do live in a, in a world that it is highly stigmatized to be vulnerable and more so to actually... Uh, admit fault. Like yeah. we live in this social media world where everybody's sharing all these really picturesque moments and perfect things and everybody looks beautiful and there's filters if you, to make yourself feel more beautiful and there's all these things and there's, there's not enough of, hey, I'm hurting and without people saying, oh, you're looking for attention. Because it's social media, again, everything feels like it's just attention driven. Right. Where a lot of these things are real. Someone is hurting. Someone needs something. But instead of maybe saying it to their friend, they're saying it online and then they're becoming you know, people are making fun of them or thinking they're seeking attention or whatever. So it's, it's really dangerous. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm self-aware of who I am and, and how I'm perceived because I've been in this industry for so long. And most people I meet 
say exactly kind of what you said, which is like, oh, here's this guy who's like, you look like a football player, you look, you know, tall, your hands and privileged. Like I've been, I've been incredibly privileged. I've, I've had a privileged life. I know what people think when they see me typically because I'm just like everyone else who knows what people, you know, you, you, you see these things. So, yeah. although you did um, not come in leather pants or anything like the right, but it, right, but so. right, but but with that said, like I feel like a great amount of responsibility to show my brokenness yeah. because of that. Um, because I've, since I was young, I've hated how I looked. I, I've, I hated who, uh, a lot of parts of me. I dealt with a lot of self-hatred. Um, and so because of that, I, I feel a responsibility to share my truth be, because of this um, platform I've been given. I'm on a stage in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people a year. So, you know, when we're touring and, and re so for me, it's like, uh, I don't know, I feel like if I'm, I'm gonna die at some point and I'm here for this allotted amount of time, so what I'm gonna do with this amount of time, <clears throat> I just wanna speak my truth. Yeah. I, I wanna share my truth with people and my truth is that life is really hard. I've dealt with a lot of depression and self-hatred. Um, but I believe that therapy has saved my life. I believe that music has saved my life. So I think it's the most important for someone who is perceived as um, given, you know, been privileged, and I, and I, I am privileged, yeah. but to, to really speak out. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like I, I'm very aware of the perception of who I am. Yeah, I, and I think you have a choice, you know, when you have a platform, whether you have a small platform or you have a large platform like yours. Um, and I think maybe even if I was going to extract a lesson, maybe to even the people who are watching thinking, you know, I'm uh, 26 years old and I don't have a platform. But really, you know, it's not about um, the quantity, it's about the quality, right? If you could just reach one person with your words, if you could pick up the phone and call your friend and say, hey, it's, we haven't talked for a while. Are you okay? How's it going? Even just that one person, right? Just reach out to that one can make all the difference. Let's go a little bit deeper into um, some of the things you've learned from therapy or just through life experience, maybe just to impart some of that wisdom. What are some of the things that you learned to cope? Like, how did you get through that? It's, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm doing well now. Uh, everything's... You know, I'm, I'm managing it. What are some of the things that you learned how to cope? Uh, you know, I think it's really individualized. Everybody kind of has a different, you know, triggers and things that were traumatic for them, different things that uh, either, you know, started their, their cycle into depression or maybe it was just genetics or, you know, there's, there's a million things that people say. For me, um, I really, really dealt with serious, um, I don't like, the, I don't like faith crisis, but that, that's the only word I can, or phrase that I can think of right now to kind of explain it. I, I was raised in a really religious home. My entire life was built around structure and religion. Yeah. And that's so much so that I went on a Mormon missionary for mission for two years and, and, uh, and based my whole life on something that for me, uh, really fell apart and then I was left with nothing. Put a timestamp on that. About when did that happen? Uh, I, st I mean, I dealt with 
I had a hard time believing in God. Like that's why I say faith. I don't like faith crisis because it kind of reflects on just religious terminology. Like for me, it was as a teenager, I really wanted to know if there was a God. And it seemed like nobody else around me really cared that much. Like everybody was like, right, maybe I, I, there is a God, cool, or I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Like for me, it was an obsession. I was like, right, but like, I need to I'm know. here. Yeah. Why am I here? What happens when I die? I, like death was very much on my mind. And it was something that I cared deeply about. And I really wanted, if there was greater understanding to be had, I wanted it. And so my teach, you know, what I had been taught was that, well, you need to be, you need to really search to find that. So I really, really searched hard. And your whole family's in it to win it too? Yeah, my, my whole family's very active Mormon still. Yeah. I, so I went on a Mormon mission. I mean, I studied, I read the Bible every single day for, for years and read the Book of Mormon, which is the Bible to the Mormons and, and really studied it and, and uh, built my life on that since I was a young kid. Mm-hmm. Then I came home from my mission and then everything started to kind of crumble. And, and again, what, what year is this approximately? Uh, 21, 22. So at the same time, the band was like, I started this band and the band started to take off. And then all I was singing about really, I mean, everything in, in Imagine Dragons discography is primarily based on crisis of faith. Yeah. Everything. Your like, journey. Yeah, yeah. And, and so for me, because uh, that's all I care about. That's the focus of my life. It still is, is a grand focus to me like I'm but I'm much more spiritually searching now than than um, religiously searching how did your family react <clears throat> not good I mean my family's heartbroken <laughs> about it I think my mom probably prays for me every night you know but I but I see that in a different way I I was you know if you we were having this conversation like a decade ago I would be saying this in an angry way um, like I had a lot of anger towards religion now I don't have that I, I understand the heartbreak of, you know, family and a mother who wants an easy life for their kids and wants their kids to have faith. And, and I, I'm, you know, I'm still searching. I'm, I'm not anti-religious, but I'm just uh, on a journey to find truth wherever it may be. And, and, uh, and it might be a lot of different places and you gather a little bit here and there, but that's my life's quest is to, to find that and impart it to my children, the truth, any truth that I find, and then to dissuade them from going down paths that I've gone down that have been not fruitful and yeah. What advice do you have then for others who might be on a journey similar to yours, trying to figure stuff out or having a truth crisis or a faith crisis, however you want to label it. How do you deal with that? Especially when you're insulated, you're in a community or a tribe, right? Yeah. I'd say, first of all, I feel for you. I, I really, really think that a crisis of faith is, is extremely traumatic. I've lost friends to suicide because of faith crises. So just as, as traumatic as other things in life are, like this is a very traumatic thing and people who are raised with a deep sense of religion or, or faith and then they lose it, it's very easy then to lose your complete way in life and go the full opposite direction. Like for, that's what happened to me. I mean, I <clears throat> lost my faith and then I became a rock star and then I said, well, I'm gonna do everything. and. and just about killed myself in a million different ways. And so I don't want, you know, I, I know what it feels like to, to go through it. I just say, I, you know, I, I feel for you. Does that mean like getting caught up in the rock star lifestyle, what we all imagine it is? Yeah. 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 yeah I, uh, I do a really good job of hiding, you know, my, my demons, you know, um, no pun intended. I guess we have a song about that, but, um, it's sort of out there. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> out there. Yeah. But you know, I, I've, 
I've dealt with. I I am I'm always trepidatious to talk about this because I really I'm disenchanted with like I'm quite jaded towards the rock star mentality of like the allurement of drugs, sex, rock and roll. Like I think I well not I think I've lost my friends to that. Like I've lost multiple friends to drugs. So I really don't like to aggrandize it in any way and I feel like a lot of times in this industry it's like aggrandized kind of thing. Yeah. Although I I will but it's good to talk about it, I guess, too. So there's a, maybe a good middle ground that I haven't quite found. Well, I guess what I was getting at is it, it does seem like several several artists, at least, you know, who I can think of, um, in the mainstream, like you are, are kind of coming to their senses, right? Like, um, you know, Justin Bieber had his problems, right? He was a kid, grew up as a kid, became famous as a kid, almost threw his life away. And now, you know, he's a young, young man still. He's married, kind of getting his life together and is getting more serious about stuff. And, and it seems like you've had a, a maturation process as well where you, you, know, you were going through this process. You were young and dumb, maybe. You, you were experimenting, uh, playing with fire. You got burned a little bit. You learned from that. And now you're this family man. Here we are in your house. I can see the... The music on the piano uh, of the kids who, who are practicing doing their scales or whatever, and then down the hall, I saw a, a little girl who was running around, probably just finished eating broccoli. Um, Dan Reynolds, Dan Reynolds, very uh, how can I say domesticated now, <laughs> versus maybe the image that people see when you're on the stage. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm glamorizing uh, that life. I think the lesson to be learned here. And it's, I think, a lesson that can be applied whether whatever industry you're in. I think you can get lost. You know, if you know, your dad's an attorney, you could go down that that path and and just be so fixated and and concerned about the law that you lose the sight. You know, forest for the trees kind of thing. Much more important. And I think my audience too, which is really like a a thirty to forty something audience, um, they're active professionals and they they want to know kind of how you did it, how you how you battled those demons and how you came out sort of on the other side. Therapy. <clears throat> For sure therapy. I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm a proponent of therapy. I think that uh, it's certainly saved my life. I have great therapists that I've worked with through, uh, for over a decade um, who have helped me through really, really difficult times. Um, so yeah, I, I, first of all, I think you know two things have saved my life: music and therapy. So I, I believe in both, and I and I live both every single day. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, I also think sometimes you just have to go on a path, and everybody goes on a different path. And you're never like I could have had a million therapists tell me, "No, don't do this," or I could have met with you and you say, you know, "Don't, don't do drugs, Dan," or whatever you're going to tell me. And I, maybe I'm just going to do it no matter what. Yeah, and it, you know what I mean. Like I could have been told all the perfect things by the perfect people in the perfect way. Like I could give this advice to a million other people, and they're still just gonna do it. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's like you can't save a life by saying, "Hey, go to therapy," and that person goes to therapy and that saved their life. But on the same note, some lessons can never be learned uh, or taught; they can only be learned. I really believe that, and so I, uh, I've gotten to where I am also just by failure a lot of failure. I've gotten to where I am by horrible withdrawals. <laughs> I've gotten to where I am through, um, you know, suicidality. Like, I've gotten to where I am because of I've gotten way over here. And now when I see that, then I know I want to be over here. So 
I'm not saying go get burned by the fire, but I'm saying some people are just going to get burned by the fire. Yeah, and I think that's a fair statement because it's ironic, isn't it? Like, the only way to get the kind of life experience that you and I have now up to this point is to just live it. And the only way to get wisdom, to get smarter from the experience is to, the first step is you gotta make the mistake. If, if we, you know, there's this idea that, um, what's the saying, um, uh, failure is not an option. That's false. Failure has to be an option, right? right? Uh, otherwise, you're, you're lying or you're hiding. You're living small. If you're out there living it, you're gonna make mistakes. And then hopefully, if you learn from it, then you get that experience, and that experience turns into wisdom. The next time you have the opportunity to do the same thing, you avoid it, and then you're a little bit wiser, a little smarter. Right. It's ironic, though. It's the only way to get to where you are is to, to go through it, yeah. right? The key is not to fail so far that you can't come back and, right. and fight another day. Right. right. Yeah, and a lot of the most, you know, uh, People who are changing the world that I've, you know, I've, I've gotten to meet some of these people who've really altered the world in quite a big way just because of the position I've been in. <clears throat> I think every single one of them came back from something. Yeah. Who, who inspires you? My mom. You know what I mean? Like, I think of my mom. There's a lot of women in my life that are very powerful. My wife. My wife um, is incredibly inspiring to me. She came up through a lot of trauma and difficult things and is an incredible mom. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it goes, it's, not, not all of them are celebrities, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. a lot of them, are, a lot of the most powerful people I know have changed the world. My mom has changed the world just by the kids she's had and what they've gone on to do and, and, and the incredible mother she is. I wouldn't be here, well, I obviously physically wouldn't be here without her. But, um, so yeah, I, I mean... Uh, Talk about your wife for a minute. Um, you, you've been very vocal and, and talked about your relationship and how how that was before. Can you kind of tell that story? And, and again, frame me in the context of yeah. talking about your story for other people who might be in, in the struggle right now. So we met over a decade ago uh, when my band opened for her van in Las Vegas. She was in, uh, the singer of a band called Nico Vega, really heavy rock band, uh, kind of the antithesis of everything I had been raised in. So I was here I was with Fresh, clean, vanilla, Imagine Dragons church opening. Kid. Yeah, church kid opening, you know, lost and looking for truth. And, uh, and then we opened for this heavy rock band that was like dark and magical and felt very um, just dark. And that was actually very alluring to me as we opened for them. And, but I knew there was more complexity there. It wasn't like... Um, dark to be dark because it's so cool it was like there was just a lot of complexity maybe complexity is a better word for than dark or edge yeah 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 even edge i'm like mm, complexity Com like there was a lot going on there a lot of uh yeah experience life experience yeah. uh and so i stayed after the show and then we talked for a while and it was just like that it was like to, you know, light and dark or complexity and non-complexity coming together yeah. and it was and she was looking for someone who was just looking for, you know, truth and like she, you know, all the other guys she had met were sitting down with her and wanting to sleep with her and I was sitting down and my first question to her was like, what do you believe? You know what I mean? She was like, oh my gosh, like, let's <laughs> go sit in the corner, everybody else is drinking, we're going to be sober over here and talk about what, what we believe. Wow. Okay. And that was uh, where our whole relationship kind of launched from and then we became best friends and then we fell in love and then I proposed and we got married and I was like 23. This is before Imagine, Imagine Dragons was a big whatever. Like we could hardly sell out a, a what is the What is the actual starting point? When, when was the band become official? 
So uh, we, I mean, we started like 11, 12 years ago, but we broke in a mainstream way like eight years ago, maybe. So there was, I want to say there was at least three years of, wow, you know, some members just gave up because there was like, I think we had four members that, you know, within a three year period we lost because it just looked like we weren't going to get signed and this wasn't going to be a career and it was a hobby and people moved on to different things. Were you just gigging at the time, playing small <clears throat> venues? And, uh -huh. and we were just uh, trying to make ends meet. We were just, that was our full-time job. So it was putting food on the table, which was playing at the casinos here in Las Vegas. And uh, no, I, I never thought that, I mean, of course I wished that I could do what I loved forever, but I, I was also a pessimist or a realist or whatever the word is that I was like, right, are you going to win Megabucks too? And are you going to like be a QB in the NFL? What else are you going to do? Did you have a backup plan? Uh, I, I thought about like trying to be a Navy SEAL or going into the FBI. Like I was re I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do something that pushed myself into an uncomfortable, scary place. That's that. I knew that for sure. I did not. I wasn't going to do a desk job, but I knew my mom was like, "You have to get a doctorate degree." Blah blah. blah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to law school and then either go into the army or go into um, some sort of yeah, something gotcha. in that field. So back to you. you. You're sitting talking about what you believe mm -hmm. with your wife and yeah. So we fell in love. Are we on the same page? Uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, it was like really, she was like, I think I've lived multiple lives. I was like, that's crazy. And she's like, yeah, you believe in Joseph Smith, you're crazy. <laughs> so we were like, she was like, Scientology. And like, it was like everything that we were throwing out at each other was just like, yeah, maybe we don't really believe in any of that stuff. And we need to like go find what we believe in. And there were, you know, so it was, we had a really kind of fun, interesting. Yeah, you're both open-minded. You came into the relationship. Yeah, we were both very open-minded and we both, there was no ego, you know, like for me, I was never attracted to sitting down with someone who was like, I have the answers to life. Let me tell you about it. Like right. I'm interested in sitting down with people who are like, let me tell you about the things I don't know. I'll tell you about the things I do know too, but I, I mostly don't know. Yeah. And I love talking with people like that because I feel like, okay, that's a truth seeker. There's no ego in your existence. You're just looking for truth. Um, so we really fell in love through that. I mean, yeah, I, I thought she was super hot and like this amazing singer and stuff, but really her heart was, on the same journey as yeah. I was. You guys are in sync. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then it was like, bing, bang, bong. Like we got married, had a kid, totally broke, living in a studio apartment, didn't know how we'd make ends meet week to week. I dropped out of college. My mom was upset with me because I was like pursuing music full time at that point. Um, was she, was your wife supportive? Like super supportive. She came from Eugene, this. Oregon. It was like artists, be broke. You're an artist, cool. You know what I mean? It was totally, which is part of the reason I loved when I met her, because she was like, let's go be broke and live in the mountains and like write books together. Yeah. And I was like, okay, amazing, awesome. Like, I don't want to go be, I don't want to So go. hard if it's the opposite, right? Like, you know, looking at your clock, Dan, when are you going to get a real job? 100%. You know, we need a house, yeah. got to put food on the table. Yes. That's such a gift. <laughs> it, it, it was, but it was, you know, it was one of those things where I, it just was what I needed at that point in my life. So then we, you know, fell in love, had a kid, all these things happened, but then the band blew up and that really blew everything up in our life. 
some for the better, some for the worse. It was like, then I was gone all the time. Then I, like playing gigs all over the world, away from my home and my newborn baby for three months and all the things that come along with fame and how like horrible a lot of those things are. I also am not a person who likes, I really, really don't, I'm an introvert, I don't like. On, on stage, I'm an extrovert. Yeah. When I'm on stage, I'm completely comfortable. I could do anything and be anyone and do anything. And it's, it's my purest self. But um, I, I really don't like all the other parts that come along with fame. I, I, I don't like going out. I'm a super introverted person. I'm, I, I'm, honestly, I'm like a hobbit. I don't, I've lost like all my friends. I've just, I don't go anywhere. It's pretty sad. I mean, but, yeah. A hobbit, yeah. And maybe you're a family man now. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. You know what? I'm honestly just like my dad. My dad has one best friend who they spend time together and go you know, camping and, and do their thing. And, and other than that, my dad was always was like, why do I need anything else? I have my kids. And, and he would work, you know, he worked, he still works. He's in his 70s, still working. Um, you know, incredibly hardworking man who kind of gave his whole life for his kids. And, you know, for me, um, I, I, yeah, I just, uh, I got, I'm in a career that's always 50% of it I love and 50% of it I really hate. And it's pretty toxic for me. Yeah. And so it's like finding... And honestly, that's probably everybody. Like, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody who's like, I love my job every day and it's great for me and I love going to do this thing that I do every day. Unless, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some people like that. But um, for me, there's parts of, of my career that I love and there's some parts that I don't love but I can't ever take back, which is like the fame and those like... Were, were you being pressured then from, from managers or people who are helping you navigate your career? To, to do the rock star stuff? To like, uh, no, really the opposite. I mean, my labels and stuff like that, for sure. Like, I, I would serve my band 10 times better if I uh, was dating, like, some celebrity. Like, you do something like that, and it makes your band bigger, and it right. makes, like, that's, those are obvious things that, yeah. I don't know, I've never had a label person call me and be like, Dan, divorce your wife and go date, you know, yeah. so-and-so. But, and, and that's, like, and a lot of people don't know that that's actually happening today as we speak. There are couples together oh, yeah. who are just together for publicity. Yeah, That's not a known sure. thing. And I'm not saying everybody who dates a celebrity is only doing it for that, but I will tell you that it's smart marketing. And yeah, it's smart, thing. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so, no, I'm, I'm pretty much... Uh, I, Imagine Dragons is where Imagine Dragons is solely because of our music. We've never been a face. We've never been... Um, a uh, relationship, a dramatic thing in the news. Like, we're, we're, yeah. it's just not, it's not a reality for me. And it's also not something I want to be part of. Thankfully, my, my brother is my manager. He's been my manager for over a decade, my older brother. Uh, before we were anything, I, I begged him to be our manager. I was like, please. He was like, all right, I believe in it enough, I guess. And now, you know, he's, he's stuck with us through all of that. And he, um, He's never pushed me to do any. In fact, when, when I went, through, me and my wife went through a really difficult separation and I was in a really dark place in my life and I was experimenting with a million different things and he was really sad about that. And that was a really hard time period. I think he almost quit because of that. Whereas maybe, it, and it probably, you know, I'm sure and another manager would be like, this is great, Dan's single now, now we can do this and this, we can build this thing and do this. And, um, but he was completely opposite. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more as, as difficult as I would assume it is? I've heard you talk about it in the past, and I think it might be valuable to this audience. Um, I would assume the lifestyle, being away, distance, all, all these other factors, kind of a perfect storm of whatever. 
caused this rift between you two and there's this separation. What happened, but more importantly, how did you fix it? Well, I was, I dealt with depression for a long time at that point, <clears throat> leading up to the separation. And I don't know, I can't speak for other people who are depressed, but when I, a lot of times, no matter how much I study it, no matter how much therapy I do, there will come times in my life where I just think my depression is a source of something. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, you need, this person who's in your life is bad for you, or this thing you're doing every day is bad for you and it's depressing you. I mean, there's like triggers. <laughs> triggers. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, causes. For me, I'm really, it's, the, the complexity and the nuance of my depression is, I'm sure there are some things I have, but it's so much more like it's been a part of my life for a long time. Before I met Asia, before, you know, I, um, and there's a lot of reasons why that I could probably think of, and my therapist could probably tell you better than me. But um, for whatever reason, it, we got to a point where first we had grown apart because I'm gone all the time, and I was coming home, and you're like trying to refall in love, and then you're gone, and then like, and I'm stressing about all these things that are going on, not spending so, enough. Yeah, so a lot of things like that led up to it. We grew apart in some ways, but also I was just so depressed that I was like, I need to leave, every, I need to run away. Like for me, I just felt. Like I wanted to run away from the entire world. I wanted to go move onto an island uh, and and restart. Was it like feeling overwhelmed? Uh, yeah, kind of feeling like you worked so hard to get somewhere and then you got there and you were like, oh, this is the last place I want to be. This is actually everything I don't want to be at. So and and then you're kind of stuck there because you've built a tower. That, you know, there, There's a lot of people that are involved with it and there's a lot of pressures that come with it and there's livelihood based on it. and. And I just didn't want to, to do it. Um, so I just became very self-destructive. I was like, you know, I just, it was like one day I just called her and was, you know, in Europe and was like, okay, I'm done. That's it. Um, which, you know, was the worst thing you could ever do to, to a person. But um, oh, and well, how did she lost. respond? She was uh, super sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, did she say, no, don't do this? Or? Of course, of course. Um, but I was just in a place where I was in, you know, I was, uh, I don't know, I just uh, needed to be self-destructive for whatever reason. I don't, I don't really have a good reason for it to this day other than uh, <clears throat> I just was really depressed and, and uh, angry, R really angry. Yeah. yeah. When I was going through my little depressive episode, and it happens often, <laughs> I'm just more aware of it now. It's been happening, you know, off and on for the past, I don't know, probably 15 years when I've at least been aware of it. Um, I learned something from uh, an author, his name is David Burns, and David wrote this book called Feeling Good. Uh, he has a new book called Feeling Great, but basically he's the, one of the pioneers of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And one of the things that I took away from my therapy and my research is that I was experiencing distortions the distortions are really the main cause of my, you know, me being my own worst enemy. In other words, I'm seeing it one way, but it's a distorted view of what it really is. Or if I'm looking in the mirror and I see, oh, you look so ugly today, or I, I, hate, the, I hate that the way you look, that's a distortion. That's not the way my best friend would no. react to me or my wife or my kid. It's the way I'm seeing it, the situation. Yeah. So distortions can be extremely dangerous and destructive, right? And uh, so I, I'm, f I'm f trying to feel, I feel kind of a little bit how you are feeling, at least through my 
my, my lens. Um, in incredibly hard, especially when you're in it, because it's hard to find a way out. So how did you dig your way out of that hole? I mean, because some people don't. They, yeah. they, they end their life tragically, or they completely detach from everyone, and they start numbing or escaping with drugs and alcohol or, or other things that you can escape? Uh, kind, well, I kind of hit rock bottom, and I, I haven't even talked about this really publicly, but um, <clears throat> without getting into too much deal, detail, just because I, I don't feel like it will serve anybody, I, I really got to a place where, so we didn't talk for, I want to say six, almost seven months, and I was living in a really extreme way where I, didn't, I just didn't want to live. I didn't want to live anymore. And got in a situation where I was, um, I was uh, just, my, my body was giving up on me. And I reached out to Asia at that point, and that was the first time we talked. And then she kind of nursed me back to a healthy place and was with me at, yeah, after that happened. I called her from a hospital, and I was just not in a good place, somewhere overseas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Again, you know, you're, you're a man who seems very deeply spiritual and thoughtful, um, who at one point had a foundation of, of faith in something called a higher power, or God, whatever you want to call it. That moment that you were able to reach out, does it not seem like a little miracle to you? Because, again, some people don't, don't have that, right? Yeah. They don't get lucky or they don't have the clarity to, to be able to reach out. They just think all is lost. And you know, they toss in the towel. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing that I wrestle with all the time. I mean, <clears throat> for instance, I can tell you that I prayed, when I, back when I was a praying man, I prayed constantly to be able to do what I do now today, since I was a teenager. So, you know, Put, put a decade of prayers nightly that always included, God, please let me do what I love every day and travel the world and sing. Mm -hmm. And then I was given a one in a billion. Imagine Dragons is one in a billion. Like yeah. there are no more bands that do this. You don't break, you don't get to travel the world. Yeah. Um, for what we've done, it's, it's one in a billion. It's like winning megabucks. So someone, an outsider, if I tell them that story, which I typically don't like to tell people that story, will say, well, that's a miracle, and God answered your prayer and gave you what you wanted. So why would you not believe in God after that? And it's one of those things, and I'm sure there's parables written on it, and I know there are biblical ones, but I'm sure other ones too, that are like, give a man a, a miracle, and then he'll find an excuse for it, right, or something. And that's why God maybe doesn't give miracles if there's a God or any of those things. And again, like, I'm not a denier of God. I more than likely think there is something more than we die, after we die. There's one thing for sure, and that's I don't know what I don't know. Right. You know, and um, I have heard a lot of miraculous stories. At the same time, you're right. Um, a lot of bad things happen to good people who don't deserve it. And, and that brings into question sort of intervention-style God. If, you know, if he'll grant little miracles like helping you find your keys or... Right, why not save the kid dying of cancer? Yeah, so that doesn't actually always track. Uh, and yet maybe, you know, God or this higher power, maybe it's if I'm theorizing philosophizing, maybe it lives within us, right? That we all have this capacity 
to be awesome. You know, we, were, we weren't born to fail. Even the stats on us being here on the planet, right, is what a trillion to one, right, just being born, the statistics of that, right? Mm -hmm. But that this underlying message, maybe to bring it back full circle of, of you know, seeing ourselves or our true worth, our value, is that God is really in all of us and we're capable of great things. Um, you know, it's just maybe up to us to find it. Some of us have obstacles. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question mark. I, I don't have an answer for you. No, I, I think that sounds like a pretty good, pretty good thought. And it's, you know, it's pretty close to, to where I'm landing. I just, uh, you know, I, I think I live with hope more than anything and Same. my mom would always argue to me well hope is faith so you have faith so everything's gonna be okay because you're gonna go to heaven and I'm like oh mom I don't know if it's, I see it the same way as you like that but I appreciate it and it sounds like I'll be okay you don't have to worry about me then right so yeah. Um, but yeah I, I uh, so you're back together yeah so we're back together um, you know I don't know if this is what you want me to say uh, but if I'm telling you my truth of what's been incredibly helpful for me I also think that, um, like I'm being perfectly honest, I think that there are some therapeutic things that have not been legalized that might be really helpful for people. Uh, I found ayahuasca to be incredibly healing for me, um, pretty life-changing actually. <clears throat> and you know, we live in a world right now where you could sit down and be given all kinds of medications and different things. And they're fine, and they're not faux pas, yeah. and they're seen as, as completely okay. And some of them save lives. I've, you know, I've been on depression medication for before. I have friends who've been on it before. I'm not anti-medication, but I also think that we should be open to to exploring everything that the world has given us to heal. And for me, and Asia too, and and I only will speak for her because she's spoken about this openly. Otherwise, I wouldn't bring it up and breach her privacy. But both of us have experienced incredible uh, healing from ayahuasca. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned I think, you know, here we are in 2021 talking about it kind of gently. Yeah. And, you know, flash forward a decade from now and psilocybin and, you know, right. all these other... Which are coming now, becoming legalized. Like, There's even my therapist is like, I'm going to, or my psychiatrist has been like, I'm going to be one of the first people to actually be able to do it legally yeah. here soon. And that, like, we wouldn't have gotten back together if it weren't for ayahuasca. Like, I went through this period where I, like I said, I was in, I had a real big health uh, scare. And then we sat down together to sign divorce papers and then stood up in the meeting, walked out, went to eat together, and within a week did ayahuasca together. Yeah. And then from there... Well, what caused <laughs> you to stand yeah. up and walk out? Uh, well, she sent me a text message on the way to the meeting that was very lengthy, that was, I mean, it's text message. I hate calling this a text message because it just sounds so trite because of technology and things, but she wrote magic to me. Like a letter, you know, hundreds of years ago through, you know, through a telegraph or whatever it is that spoke to me on a really deep level. And she said all these truths that were like so profound, like as if she reached up into the heavens, figured out everything I needed to hear, figured out everything she needed to say, said it perfectly. Yeah. Little did I know she had just done ayahuasca for the first time. And then she, and she had all these realizations through it yeah. that gave her these ultimate truths that she then relayed to me. I'm not saying ayahuasca is going to save everybody's relationship. Yeah. but No, uh, she got dialed in the right frequency. She was very dialed in in yeah. a way 
that I was like, whoa. I read it and I was like, whoa, these are so, these are really true, real things. Like, what's going on? Yeah. Have you just changed so much in these seven, what's you been doing these seven months? Like, right, right, right. Did you, have you been sitting with like yogis and like, what's going on? Yeah. And, uh, well, because I would imagine prior to that, you know, the text was like, I want the pool table. No, you know, yeah. you get well, the there car. There was no text. It was like, I'm, we were like, there was so much hurt and pain. Yeah. There was no talk. Walled garden. Yeah, I would, I, like, my birthday, I remember reaching out and being like, I love you, I miss you, I'm thinking of you, and nothing. Ghost. Father's Day, nothing. Yeah. Which I deserved all, like, I don't, I'm not saying it in the way of, like, poor old me, but I was, like, across the world, so depressed, so self-destructive, yeah. and completely alone, deservedly so. That's what I asked for. Yeah. Um, salt in your wounds, though. Yeah, but salt in my wounds. You know, as Father's Day passes, I'm by myself on the other side of the world, away from my kids, and like get, yeah. going through divorce. It was, it was a horrible time. You deserve it, you dirtbag. You're 5,000 miles away. Yeah. You're not with your kids. What kind right. of father are you? <clears throat> for sure. Shame tactics. For sure. For sure. Uh, and, and like I said, deservedly so. But it... it the change was so profound in her in a way that it was not like, you know, when you think of psychedelics, you typically think of the crazy person on the street who's lost their mind yeah. to drugs, which is not the case. That's not what ayahuasca is doing to people. That's what, like, methamphetamine and, and like. So for me, I, when she brought it up to me, I was already trepidatious of it because I had never delved into the world of psychedelics and it felt very scary to me. But like I said, I don't see it. I, I, I don't even like calling it psychedelics because, it's, it's, again, it makes people think of drugs. Yeah. It was a medicine that, uh, that I did once, and it, it really altered my mind in really powerful ways. I wouldn't even say altered my mind. It, it, uh, it cleaned out. Yeah, it seems like it gives you clarity. Repetitive, yeah, you have repetitive trigger processes that you go through. Removes the blocks. Yes. A lot of my depression was this would happen and then it sends me in this circle and then I just go in this circle in my brain over and over. What ayahuasca did for me was it felt like somebody blew smoke through all of those circles. They went away. I still had the same brain, still accessed all my memories and, and normalcy, but I no longer had these triggers, these traumatic things because of, you know, what I went through in those four hours of ayahuasca. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. I'm, I'm going to throw out some trigger words maybe and you can talk about it. Okay. Uh, what comes to mind? Toxic masculinity. Oh man, I, I'm a firm believer in that. I was trying to touch on that before, um, which is again like being self-aware. I I look at myself. I've always been overly self-critical, and it's one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest flaws. With everything I do, I always am trying to see it from everyone else's view. Like, yeah. okay, when I did this. And I'm, I, I, one of my kids is, does this already, and I'm like, eight, my heart aches for her because I already see her doing this. But it's, it also has helped me to achieve a lot of things because I'm also think, trying to think of things from a million different perspectives. It's like a perfectionism club. <laughs> yeah. See, I think uh, it's just really important, I think, for men to be vulnerable. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it does not come easy for me. Um, but I would think of myself as a pretty vulnerable person at this point. I'm emotional. I share my emotions with people. I'm often crying on stage and I'm okay with that um, <clears throat> because I think that it's really incredibly healing and I think men have been pitted in a, in a we, we've been positioned in a place that we just need to get out of which is you're, you know a, a strong man is an unemotional man and I think it's actually the opposite I think a strong man is a very emotional man I don't trust a non-emotional person I and not I'm not saying like you know for instance some of my brothers are 
I've never even seen them cry. Yeah. And that's just who they are. Like, I genuinely don't think they're like, they're toxic masculinity. I'm not, like, they just aren't very emotional crying people. So it's not always like tears that I'm talking about. I'm just saying having conversations about feelings. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Love Loud. Yeah. Uh, Love Loud is a charity that I started. how many years has it been now? Four years ago. It's an LGBTQ charity based on igniting conversation about what it means to love and accept your kid. Um, and I get asked a question, my, the first question I always get asked is, well, are you gay? And my answer is no, <laughs> I'm a heterosexual man. Okay, well, why is this important to you? This is important to me because one, a lot of my, my dear friends growing up were uh, LGBTQ and also Mormon, which anybody who grew up in that juxtaposition it was extremely dangerous i lost one of my friends to suicide in high school shot himself in his car because he felt that god hated him for who he was and he couldn't change it so he just said okay well my life is i I can never love so when you take away that opportunity to love for a kid you you're damning them to hell you're damning to, to to the most real version of hell that i know of which is living life without the ability to love um so it affected a lot of people that are near and dear to me. I have family members who are, are in the LGBTQ community. Um, so it's just something that I'm really passionate about. And, and I think that the hardest place for an LGBTQ child to be is a religious home. Because, um, or, or you know what, I don't want to say religious home, a non-accepting home. There's some religious people that are fantastic and have been wonderful to their kids when they come out. But that being said, I would be lying to you with the statistics that we have, which is why are a lot of these kids finding it hard to, to exist in this world? And it's because if you're in a community where you're told that your sense of uh, the ability to love is a sin, then you are then going to put that kid into their statistics are going to go through the roof with uh, drug use, uh, risky dr- uh, sex, um, suicide. It's, it's like five times higher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're not accepted in your community, which is being told that your lifestyle is sinful. If you could talk to the parents of children who are, are in that community, what would you say to them? I think, the, the, first of all, listen is, is the first thing I would say. And that's what I've just spent the last you know, years doing is just listening to these kids. And what they have said to me is acceptance is actually not enough. When you say the word accept to a child, because most parents that I'll talk to will say, well, I told my kid, you know, it, it, you can tell it was hard for them to get here, and I understand um, that it was hard for them, but they'll, they'll say, well, I told my kid that I accepted them, so I've done my job now. Now their statistics are going to be fine. They're not going to kill themselves. That's not what it is. Yeah. What changes it is to normalize them, to celebrate them like you would celebrate your other kids, because acceptance feels like, Right? God told me I needed to accept you, so I'm, I accept you, but there's always kind of a dagger behind the back. It's kind of like, but you're not living how you're supposed to live, and so sinner, I accept you. And, uh, and thief that's stealing in this place over here, I, I, God loves you, I love you. That's what it sounds like to these kids, which is, of course, it's not going to save their life. What is the, what's the phrase? Um, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. Right. Yeah. Which but it's, it's a backhanded... It's a backhanded thing. It, it, it never feels like love to these kids because well, it's not love. Yeah, which and, is, yeah. and I've heard the... Uh, what is it? Um, 
we love you no matter what. Exactly, same thing. Which is, is insidious. It, it, all of those <laughs> phrases are, I understand that the, it's like, it feels like we're doing something, but we're really not. Yeah. It is, I celebrate you. You're perfect the way you are. Yeah. It's all going to work out. Like to those, and, and, and again, like I understand that religion is precious. I'm not telling people like, hey, give up your religions. Right. Like, come on. There's a lot of people who it works great for them. They're happy. They believe in it. They have their faith. Awesome. I wish I had that faith. Yeah. Damn, I would love to have that faith. I've spent my lifetime trying to have that faith. I just, I, I don't have a religious faith, but, but I respect it. And I would say to those people, it's just going to work out. It's going to work out. Yeah. Let go of that. Do what you're supposed to do as a parent, which is, I celebrate you. You're perfect. That's what you need to tell your kid. You're perfect, and you need to believe it. You need to believe it because they'll see right through your bullshit. They, and they do, and they do. And then their statistics are five times more likely to take their life. If you know that, if every parent actually knows that statistic, when we really tell them, and we're like, this is not, this is the CDC. This is not like liberal, like with a, we're trying to do something on the far left. Like it's not, it's, this is just God's honest truth. You want your kid to be less likely to take their life. You have to celebrate them. You, there's no other, you don't have another option when your child comes out to you. Another word that comes to mind is ally. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they get wrong, right? And being an ally is what you're talking about. It's, it's being by their side. It's, you know, walking the talk. It's not just saying, you know, you can still live in this house. <laughs> That's not being an ally. You know, it's actually going up to bat for them or going to fight for them. Yeah, I think, I, I think every uh, issue that we're facing right now <clears throat> takes all sides. If, if, if there's not all sides, we're all just yelling at each other. Yeah. So it takes people sitting down and listening. Uh, and, and just like any movement for equality, you, you need both sides to step up. You need, uh, you, know, you need the white, boring, heterosexual man to also say, hey, I love you and I'm here too. And everybody needs, it's like one piece of the puzzle. It's not more important than another piece. It's just part of the puzzle. Everybody needs to give their piece. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I just, like I said, this is my family. These are my friends. And yeah. I love them. I want them to have the same opportunities that, that, that I've been given. Do you think the church will ever change its stance on its rigidity? You know, I have met with church leaders. Um, I still, you know, I still think of myself as a cultural, Mor like Mor Mormonism, what people need to understand about Mormonism is it's, it's like Judaism in that it's cultural. It's your people, it's your community, it's every dinner you have together. It's, it's, it's not Sunday we go to church and then it's every day is Mormonism. Every person that I grew up with were Mormons, all my friends were Mormons. Like you don't walk away from Mormonism. You don't just throw in the, t unless you just move to a different country or something and start like, it's your culture. It's so... I still think of myself as a Mormon in a lot of ways because it's my culture. Um, do I think that the doctrine is going to change? I think it has to because we're already seeing a mass exodus from religion because the kids aren't okay with it. The next generation is just not okay with it. I, you know, I meet kids all the time who are very faithful, super faithful. They're like, I know God's there. I pray to God. I have a great relationship with God. I love everything about my religion. My religion's great for me. I love the Bible, like Christian or whatever it may be. Um, but I cannot get over the fact that my church isn't okay with this. I, and, and these kids are leaving. So whether you see religion as 
truth. It, and I'm not saying it's not. Maybe maybe we're gonna die and Mormon, Mormon they'll be like, you know, the South Park episode where like Mormonism was the right answer. And I was like, oh, damn, you know, maybe that's gonna happen. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. A lot of people don't know the, the South Park creators. Also. Oh yeah, we're we're Mormons. Yeah. And that's why. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But that being said, like, you know, it, I, so whether you see it as the God's honest truth or or it's just a corporation and they're just trying to keep their members in, whatever it is. I can just tell you the numbers, and they know these numbers. This isn't surprising that I'm saying this. They probably don't want me to ever say it in a public way, but religions are losing. They are on the decline. They they are going to be extinct if it isn't if it doesn't change with the times. Yeah. Now, should God change with the times or not? I'll leave that to other people to dispute. Does God change? Has God not changed? Well, it wouldn't be the first change the Mormon Church has had. There was a time when only white men could have the priesthood in the church. Now, people of color can have the priesthood. God changed his mind? I don't know. Or, you know, did, whatever. I, I, I don't need to give the answer to that, but I will tell you as someone who's studied theology, yeah. this isn't just Mormonism. A lot of churches go through changes. Right. They can change. Right. I hope they change because it's going to save kids' lives. Yeah. Let's switch gears to your music, your new album. Uh, again, deeply personal. Um, what are some of your favorite songs from it? Um, it you know, it always takes... Like a, an album being out for, I want to say a couple of years for me to really say, okay, that was, okay, that was a good song, that wasn't that good. Like I, <laughs> I, I look back at albums now and I, our previous albums, and I feel like now I can finally be like, you know, next to me, I really loved that song off, you know, our, our last album. But that's take, I didn't think that at first. And birds and you know different songs that have come up to me. But so so to short, in short, I don't really I don't have a concrete answer for you on what's my. You know what I think is the good song on the record. I think time will tell. Talk about wrecked. <clears throat> wrecked is a really sad song on the record um, that ended up being a single. Um, I don't really have a whole, a whole lot of. I mean, I, I'll I'll give my two cents to the label and stuff. What I think should be singles, but I kind of leave that to other people to decide. Um, but w what the song is about is about the passing of my sister-in-law, who I was really close to. Uh, her and my brother had eight kids at the time. Uh, all under the age of, you know, 14 at the time. So to give you an idea, a lot of young kids. She was in her 30s, totally healthy, perfect, lived, Mormon woman, never had a drink of alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, like lived a perfect life as far as physically, and just cancer just came out of nowhere, took her life within a year. She was here, and she wasn't here. Uh, and I happened to be playing a show in Houston, Texas, which was, they brought her to this specialist hospital to get specialist treatment. Nobody thought she was gonna pass. And after the show, I went and stayed the night in the hospital with her and my brother, and she passed that night. Oh. And that was the first time I've been in the room with someone who was here, and then not here. Like I said, I've lost a lot of friends throughout the years. I was never with them yeah. when they took their life, or they passed away for whatever the different, you know, overdose or whatever it was. Yeah. This was, I'm with you, I'm seeing life in you, and then I'm watching that life go, and then you're gone. And that, and also, this was someone, this was family to me. This was like, we were very close. I, uh, like, one of the most amazing people you'll ever yeah. meet. Um, so it impacted me in a way that I'm, I still can't quite put into words. Like, it, sh it has shaken me. It has made me, like, <clears throat> every day be like, what, how am I spending my time? Uh, like, like, even with, like, for instance, I really don't like doing interviews. If I'm gonna be honest with you, I really don't like interviews. Sure. Typically, when my brother sends me requests for interviews, I say no. 
this is something that's important to me. This is important to me because I think that this saves lives. I think that talking about these things are really important. It, losing my sister-in-law has made me constantly question every single way that I'm spending my time. <clears throat> I only want to be spending my time doing things that I really care to do, that I want to be there. Like I have no time for kissing ass. I have no time for doing things because it will make someone else happy. Like I, I have kids that I owe enough to already. Yeah, um, it makes it real. So anyway, that's, yeah, that song's about grief, dealing with grief and, and coming up short. I, I don't have a good answer for, you know, I, I wish the song had some line that was like, but this will make it okay. Like, there's really no line like that. No, you're talking, it's giving me goosebumps because, uh, again, I think in some ways we're cut from similar cloth. Uh, I lost my dad um, about a year and a half ago. It was really super difficult. Uh, there's a whole uh, iceberg under the water that you can't see, but um, he went in, uh, he, he wasn't in the best of health, uh, but he went in for kind of uh, uh, corrective back surgery because he, he had back pain for a long time. And uh, he was in San Francisco and I flew out to, to see him and he, he had done very well and you know exceptionally well through the surgery that we were all just kind of, like, yes, you know, he was 68, 69 years old. And, um, and I remember saying goodbye to him in the hospital and getting back on a plane to come back to Los Angeles. And then when I landed, my sisters called me and said, Dad got uh, an infection and he's gone. Just like that. And, uh, and I, have the same, I had the same experience. Like, suddenly, like, nothing matters. Everything changes on a dime, and, and then you start thinking about your own mortality. Yeah. You know, uh, am I taking good care of myself? Right. So I have four kids too, right. who count on me, but they're they're my everything, and uh, yeah, and it changes you, right? You you start to prioritize things a little bit differently. You start to um, again, you think about how life, sh how short life is, and what's really important, and the mark that you want to leave, and all that. So I I appreciate that song. I appreciate you telling me the, the background behind that song. Um, another one is uh, It's Okay to Not Be Okay. Yeah. To me, when I was listening to it, it has, it's actually very like Beatles Yellow Submarine to me. Yeah. Uh, kind of talk about the process of that one. Yeah, I, uh, it's that, I mean, I, that is currently one of my favorite songs on the record. And like I said, time will tell. Maybe in two years I'll say I hate that song. But um, yeah, I just, I, uh, I wrote that in a bout of pretty serious depression and I was, often when I'm writing a song, I'm, I'm not ever thinking that I'm writing this for anyone else because the majority of the songs I write, nobody ever hears. Yeah. And I know that. Uh, pain, I painfully know that. I've written, like I said, I've written thousands of songs, thousands. I've, I've written almost every day since I was 12. So you could do that math. I yeah. genuinely have written that many songs. <clears throat> so I know, t so typically when I'm writing a song, or always when I'm writing a song, I'm never thinking someone else is going to hear this. So I'm writing it for myself. Yeah. I'm a selfish writer. And, uh, well, I produce the show the same way. Yeah. Okay. I do it for me. Really? Yeah. yeah, right. And I you hope that, that someone wants to know the same kind of answers. Right. But if no one watched it, you'd still do it because you do it. Yeah, you I need to explore this. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when I was writing that song, I was really just saying to myself, it's a, you know, then it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. That's it. Um, the song dives into... Uh, people that I'm close to that are in my life, you know, the, the two verses are about different people and their different situations they went to, through. One is alludes to, to toxic masculinity. One alludes to 
um, someone wanting to be who they are and love who they want to love. And um, yeah, and, and uh, it certainly has a Beatlesque value to it, and I really attribute that to Rick Rubin because in its beginning stages it really wasn't. And then we got into a studio, and Rick was like, "I really like this song, but um, but it's it's pretty boring in the way that you put it together. Like, why don't you rethink it and go into a room?" And he basically gave me a basket of instruments. And I went into a room, and it was a basket full of like shakers and tambourines and a guitar. There was like acoustic guitar and just like a bunch of, you know, like nothing digitized. Um, and then I started it like that. I worked on it for like six hours that day. And I remember walking out of this little, I, I would like to go into this little room, and I'd come out and show things to Rick and the band. <clears throat> and thinking maybe they would just laugh at it or something. But it was certainly like, I was, th I was actually more thinking Take a Walk on the Wild Side by uh, Lou Reed when I was writing it, like that kind of like. It's like kind of just like mellow and a vibe, yeah. um, but it feels happy. But the but the but the lyrical content is you know makes you think. Um, yeah, it's deeply meaningful. Meaningful. Yeah. So so I showed it to him and, and everybody liked it, and so so we just built on it from there. Yeah, I, I was going to go back when you say uh, when we were talking about grief and 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 one of my key learnings, one of the things that I've been trying to focus on, and I've learned this again from from friends who've given me great advice, who've also gone through grief. I've learned about it from other therapists and professionals, that sitting with my feelings is actually okay. You know, my first reaction is to like avoid pain and whenever it feels bad, feeling bad is bad at first. And you know, so you try to either put it away, compartmentalize, or just numb it, forget about it, escape from it. But the advice that I've gotten to try and sit with my emotions has been so valuable. And, and my, the realization is that death, grief, trauma, uh, I don't think that you ever get over it. I think it's something, again, this has been advice that you learn to dance with, that it's just in your life. You know, I, I think about my dad every single day. Um, I think about my kids, my wife, every single day right. uh, and how just much gratitude I have that I still have time with them. But, you know, those grief moments or even some of the trauma that I had as a child, you know, I'm a full-grown man. I'm still dancing with it. But right. I'm, I'm to a point now where I can, again, sit with it in a comfortable place and let it, let it be and then let it roll off and right. leave. It comes and it goes. And, and that feels okay because, you know, going back to this idea of how do we get wisdom, how do we get experience? We gotta feel the pain, right? To be able to, you know, know what to do next time, which the opposite is hiding and, you know, cowardly, and you never accomplish anything, right? So if you wanna live large or live a full active life, you should expect to get your heart broken or trampled on. I mean, it's, that's just part of the package, right, of being a human. This is the inevitable. Yeah. And it either, either happens early in life, midway through, or at the end, or all the above. Right. I'm so glad you shared that. This show is called Behind the Brand. We talk a lot about brands, which extends out to humans who yeah. are personal brands. Uh, what is the Dan Reynolds brand? You know, I, I don't know. I've spent a lot of years uh, just figuring that out through trial and error. Um, it's still being figured out, I think, but I, you know, I think my largest pursuit um, is truth. You know, I, I, my life is spent 
walking through life and when I find someone who emits truth, I'm attracted to it. And the second that truth is broken, I'm out. I've like, I, I have no time for anything other than truth. I'm just a truth seeker. Um, and that's, that's it. I, my, my, you know, I, I'm here to speak my truth, to sing my truth, um, to make mistakes and, and tell the truth about the mistakes. Like, do you have like a, a thermometer or like a, a, a barometer, a reader? How do you know if someone's telling you the truth? Uh, well, I don't. I, I really become a probably overly skeptical person. I, it's one part of the reason I have so much trouble making friends because I'm always just I'm looking at everything with a bit of a, a like jaded view typically, and that's my own flaw, to be honest, because I'm sure a lot of the times people's intentions are probably good. But I've had so many people, I, I've had enough people who've had bad intentions or were dishonest that I just don't have time for that. Like, I, I'm not saying that I believe it's the right thing. Like, somebody lies to you or is living something, like, leave. That, that's your decision to make. I, but I, I, uh, I have a lot of people in my life relying on me and I also think life is really short. Um, I don't know how many years I have left. I hope I have like 40, 50 years left. I could have five. I could have one. I, I have no idea. And I believe all of those things are possible because I've seen too much death in the last, you know, in the last, in the last four years, I lost a dear friend to suicide. I lost my best friend from middle school to suicide. I lost my ex-girlfriend to cancer. I lost my business manager of 10 years to cancer. And I lost my sister-in-law to cancer. Those are five people that I genuinely was very close with in a short period of time. It makes me just, you know, every day I'm like, all right, I don't want to be a play. If I don't want to be anywhere that's not seeking truth. I don't want to be involved with a conversation that's tearing people down. The world sucks. I'm not saying I'm perfect at these things either. I'm not like... I'm this perfectly truthful person who's like, I have all my flaws, but I'm just telling you, I'm looking every day, like, what is the brand of Dan? I'm, I don't really know. I'm just like, my brand is just tell you my truth. That's it. I'm, I'm really just looking to tell my truth. I'm trying to check myself constantly, like, tell your truth. If it's not truth, stop doing it. Only tell truth. Like, the longer that I'm in this career, the more that's my, that's my focus. That's it. Final words. Um... Maybe look in this camera right here and talk to other aspiring artists, either, you know, people who want to create music or other forms of art. You know, you could argue that uh, being a terrific CPA or a plumber, that's art. Uh, That's fine and admirable. What advice do you give them, especially when there's naysayers saying, you know, hey, you've got 12 months to do this or else? You know, I I really believe that as cliche as it is, you, you absolutely should be doing what you love. Uh, I think you'll do it better than you'll do anything else. If you're in a career uh, just to make ends meet, I completely understand that. That might be a choice you need to make. So I'm not saying you know, your job is necessarily going to be something you love. Um, but I think every day you should do something that you love as much as possible. Um, and I think that you'll end up where you're meant to end up. If you really are pursuing um, your truth, exploring the world, there is going to be something you love for sure. I met a lot of people who say, well, I haven't found what I love yet. Keep exploring. You'll find what you love. And then do it. Uh, do it every day if you can. Um, do it for your living if you can, of course. 
and that's that's a that's the pursuit of life i think and that's not selfish i think that's just loving yourself it's okay to be not okay it's just fine to be out of your mind just breathe deep just a day at a time cause it's okay to be out of your mind mind <laughs>